people. Oh, you foolish Celts. If I say it one more time, what do you think? Are you thinking, well, I didn't come here this morning to be insulted? Nor did we ask you to come to do the insulting. Well, am I insulting you? Well, I don't think so. I am quoting the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Galatians, chapter 3, verse 1, where we read, You foolish Galatians, who has betwitched you? It is a passionate and it is an earnest warning to the Galatians, who I think, there is some debate about it, were Celts. And ostensibly is about circumcision. But even if they were Celts, and even if you are a Celt, it's a long way away, and it's a long time ago. What has this letter to do with us? No one is waving here a circumcision knife at us today, aren't they? Or maybe you say, well, I'm not a Celt, and I'm not a Galatian, I'm English, or Dutch, or American, or Brazilian, or maybe from some other country. What is the relevance of this text for me? And yet, the Bible always has a message for us. God's word has always relevance for us. That is the absolutely amazing thing about this book. And maybe you are a lifelong actively practicing member of the free church or of another very orthodox church and you are faithfully defending and adhering the age-old traditions in which you are steeped. And Paul has a message for you. Or maybe you are young and not so sure about faith and even less sure about the church and its rituals and its rules. But you are faced with all these questions about what <coughs> you are supposed to do and don't do. About what your lifestyle should be rather than what your parents want it to be. And that in all the things that life throws at you, art, work, at school, or in your job, or not, sex and hash, or maybe in London more cocaine, or not, going to church or not, join the crowd of your friends in this, that, or the other, or not. And Paul has a message for you. But how so? And what exactly is that message then? Well, in order to understand the relevance of our text, in this letter to the Galatians, it is always useful to look at the context. And if you think about the context, <coughs> of course the first you meet is the writer, Paul. Now we don't know what Paul looked like, but you can often see him painted on these icons, you know, these paintings on wood that they have in the Greek churches, where he is with this halo around his head, and the children are colored picture, 
in which he is always also shown in some way. And usually he is shown as a man with an eye forehead, often bald, and he is looking at us as a wise and stern and cerebral man. For others today, Paul is a woman-hater or a fanatic. Well, a fanatic Paul isn't. But he is certainly very passionate. And you can read it throughout this letter. If you look at chapter 1, verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. And then in verse 9, as I have already said, I say, I, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, then let him be eternally condemned. And then for chapter 3, verse 1, You foolish Galatians, who has betwitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. And I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law? or by believing what you heard. Are you so foolish? And then the verse in our text in chapter 2, Mark my words, I, Paul, I tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you. It is in a way like a mother who sees a little boy who has climbed on something and hanging out a first floor window. She snatches him away from the window and cuffs him around the ears. Or it is like a father who heard that his teenage son was involved in some, you know, railway daredevil scheme. And he yells at him in language the boy didn't know he knew. They're overtaken by anxiety. It is fright because of love. And maybe overreacting. But Paul is not overreacting, because he is, but he is reacting very, very strongly against the threat to the young congregation that he had only formed shortly beforehand and that he loved so very much. So you see Paul here as a real human being of flesh and blood and deeply anxious and upset and concerned about the Galatians. And that brings us to our second part of the context, these Galatians. Who were they? Well, there are different theories. There is a North and a South theory. What had happened is about 300 before Christ, three Celtic tribes had moved into what is today Turkey. They didn't speak any Gaelic. It was more of a Gaelic kind of Celtic language they spoke. And then, of course, they spoke Greek. And they lived south and east of what today is Ankara. The area is in high plateau, not much trees, very rough climate, inland, and very wild. And because of that, the area had been semi-independent until Emperor Augustus. And the Apostle Paul visited them on his second missionary journey. You can read about it in Acts 16 and Acts 18. At the time of Paul, it was about half a century ago that Augustus had combined this particular area with an area to the south of it. 
that contained the cities of Pisidian, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby cities, which Paul visited on his first missionary journey. You can read it in Acts 13 and 14, and also several times afterwards. These were cities that were, lying, that were sitting in lower-lying valleys with much more trade, traffic, culture, and development. And Augustus had called the combination of the two the province Galatia. And that was the situation at the time of Paul. Now, who the Galatians really were was never forgotten, and sometime later the province was again reduced to its old Galatians, Galatian boundaries. It is, I guess, a little bit like some administrative bigwig in London two or three hundred years ago would have combined the highlands of Scotland with the central belt and then called the whole place the highlands because it was far up north anyway. So who were they? Were they now the real Galatians or the nominal Galatians from these cities? But I believe for a number of reasons that they were the Celts. I think it's unlikely that Paul would have addressed the lowlanders as highlanders. But there are other views, also in the free church, where maybe they do not like the idea that chapter 3, verse 1 is addressed to foolish Celts. In any case, since the letter was preserved, it's now for all of us. And that, of course, is a very important point. The question who they were, though, still has some relevance for the timing of the letter, was it now after the first or the second missionary journey, and for understanding the troubles they faced. And that brings us to the third part of the context, these troubles. Because obviously there were troubles. But about what? Well, it was in all its simplicity about the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus not being enough about the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus not being enough. Possibly after Paul had preached there, some other people showed up, maybe from Syrian Antioch, checking Paul's teaching. And they told the Galatians that also circumcision was required. And they may have even, ad even added that Paul sold them short by not saying this, while in other cases, for example in case of Timothy in Acts 16, he did. There are some possible, it's not clear, reference to this in chapter 1, verse 10, where we read, Am I now trying to win the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? And if I, will still, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Or in verse 11 of our text, where it says, Brothers, if I am still preaching circumcision... Why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. Now, why did these people say that that was necessary, circumcision? Well, there are several possibilities. One is that they thought that circumcision was evidence of complying with the law. Because complying of the law was the only way to earn or achieve salvation a view, rightly or wrongly, often attributed to the Pharisees in Judaism. Today's equivalent, I guess, would be you have to be a good and decent person. Or maybe these people were not really so strict 
and they did not hold the law in all its details themselves. But for them, circumcision was evidence of belonging to the right group. There may also be some evidence for that in chapter 2, verse 14, for example, where it says, For he himself is our peace. Please, oh, got the wrong. 2 verse 14, but then in the letter to the Galatians, not the Ephesians. Uh, when I saw that they were not acting in line with, with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, You are a Jew, and yet you live like a Gentile, and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Or also in chapter 6, the verses 12 to 13, those who want to make a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to be circumcised. But the only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. And not even those who are circumcised obey the law. Yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your flesh. If this was indeed after the second missionary journey... It was probably a time of great social and political pressure. Because the Jewish people were not really on speaking terms with the Roman government. And shortly thereafter, you would have the revolt, the great revolt in 66. And it's quite likely that there was pressure from the mainstream Jewish community on the Jewish Christians not to hobnob with those non-Jews, these uncircumcised people in the new Christian congregation. It was sort of seen as a political or a social betrayal. And therefore, a token conversion of these people, and thereby inclusion in Israel through circumcision of these pagans, would alleviate the pressure. Today's equivalent, I guess, could be you need to be on the membership role of a church. Now, whether it was the requirement of being a good person by following the law or the requirement of belonging to the right group, i.e. the Jews or the church, the net result in both cases was that the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice at the cross was denied. And that is why Paul takes it so serious. And he reacts so strongly to such people in verse 5, in chapter 5, the verses 10b and 12. Because now his recent converts in Galatia could no longer be absolutely sure that they were free from sin and from guilt in Christ through faith alone. But somehow they were burdened again by having to make their own contribution with all the uncertainty about their worthiness and their salvation that comes with the view that you need to make your own contribution. You see, their freedom, their absolutely certain freedom in Christ and his forever completed sacrifice, that was threatened. And with that background in mind, let me summarize the message of God's word for you this morning as follows. Live your life in Christian freedom. And that is not in legalism, not in libertinism, but in love 
for God and his people. Living your life in Christian freedom is living your life not in legalism, not in libertinism, but in love for God and his people. So first then, not in legalism. That is the popular view of Christianity, isn't it? That it's about rules. Christians are spoil sports. You can't do this, you can't do that. People who are never allowed to have any fun. But here Paul talks about freedom. Christ has set us free in, through, for freedom. The Greek has no preposition. And what is this freedom? Well, it is defined in the next sentence in chapter 5, verse 1. Not burdened by this yoke of slavery. And what Paul means is the yoke of the law. God's commandments to mankind. The rules that God had given, which, if they are kept, both honor God and make life on earth good. But as we all know, we cannot keep God's law. We can try hard, and we can do our best, but we always slip up and make mistakes. And so we are guilty before God, our Maker, and often also guilty towards our fellow man whom we have wronged. And the yoke is the yoke of the law or of the guilt resulting from non-compliance. And Paul's message to the Galatians and the whole Bible's message to us is that Christ freed us from that burden, that yoke around our neck, that slavery. He summarized it, it summarizes it, and in a way I think it's the heart and the core of this letter in chapter 2, where he says in verse 16, Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified And then he continues, And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ would have died for no purpose. It is as it is given in the old hymn, Not the labor of my hands, can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. In order to be right with God, to have forgiveness of sin, to go in the popular Jordan to heaven, to be in Christ, that nothing that we can have to do ourselves. Many people think that being a good person or being a church member helps or is required or makes a little contribution. And the idea is both widespread and it is very tempting, isn't it? Because being a law-abiding, good and decent person all your life 
Well, that must count for something, mustn't it? Such person will not be sent back from the gates of heaven. And isn't it important then to be holy, devout, learned, good at praying, an upstanding member of a very orthodox church going there twice a Sunday? Doesn't it carry any weight then in God's judgment? Well, Paul is adamant. He's very clear and he's outspoken. All these things are very good in themselves, but through none can we supply anything, make any contribution to our salvation. We are free of that burden, that yoke around our neck, because of the Lord Jesus. That is the good news. That is the gospel. But the gospel is also very radical, simple, black and white, binary. Because the flip side of that coin is that if we think we can make any contribution, even the tiniest, we have, says verse 3, to comply with the whole law. And then for us, there is no Jesus. The contribution the Galatians were asked to make was circumcision. That is not a very likely suggestion today. But the principle applies to all things that today we may think makes a contribution, like being a good person or belonging to an Orthodox Church. Because then it applies what Paul says, O foolish Galatians, who has betwitched you? Luke, listen, mark my words. I, Paul, I tell you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Because then you have lost the plot and you're on your own. But then, if living our life in Christian freedom with God is not trying to comply with a set of rules or belonging to a certain group which maintains certain traditions, if it's not this legalism, what is then the alternative? Are there no rules then? Are there not things that we should try to keep and practices that we should try to maintain? Well, Paul is aware that that question might arise. And again, he has a very clear answer. And that brings us to our second point. Because living our life in Christian freedom is not living in legalism, but it's also not living in libertinism. And Paul raises the issue several times in our text. Verse 13. You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. And then in verse 15. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. And then there is the section in the verses 19. The acts of sinful nature are obvious. And then there is this whole list. And he says, I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then the last verse, let us not become conceited, provoking or envying each other. You see, the Galatians were probably liable to make the mistake of libertinism. 
because they came from a heathen and pretty wild background where magic, sorcery, and witchcraft played an important role. This is uniquely mentioned in the list of sins here and also, of course, in chapter 3, verse 1. And again, Paul is very outspoken. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. And what is our flesh or our sinful nature, as the NIV has it inclined, inclined to do? Well, that he spells out very practically, down to earth and in some detail. Now, the works of the flesh, he says, are evident. There are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murder, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. Some attempts have been made to classify all these vices and make them represent all possible ones. But Paul ends like, so he probably gave just those types of behavior that we also today see frequently around us. Sexual looseness. In today's society, intercourse outside the lifelong relationship between a man and a woman. Dirty websites, jokes, talk. Or putting our trust in or worshipping other things than God. Today, maybe money, or power, or science, or horoscopes, or famous personalities. Conflicts and quarrels, and the following violence, either verbally or physically, and the lack of discipline and addictions. And libertinism, and license, and do as you like, is very pervasive today, isn't it? To bring up the distinction between what is right and wrong is politically incorrect. It is my life, and I live it to the full. I want to have some fun. That is the view widely accepted. With maybe as the only constraint not harming somebody else. But even that constraint is no longer applied in the case of abortion, where the victim, of course, has neither a voice nor a vote. But as long as that's the case, you can keep your ethics and your morals, certainly if they're Christian morals, to yourselves. You can have a view, I have mine. Don't try to impose anything on me. The society today is finding out that this postmodern amoral approach does not work. Because the world and humanity were not created on the basis of political correctness. They were created by a just God who clearly indicated that there is a difference between right and wrong. That is the point of the tree in paradise. And so after we have seen it all pass by, the corrupt bureaucrats, the politicians with their snout in the trough, the greedy CEOs, the co-op bankers, people who are lifelong cheats on benefits, sports people who rig the games, comedian celebrities who avoid their taxes, the concept of morality is somewhat being rediscovered. But still, libertinism and license are all pervasive. And then maybe on a different scale, the problems are also closer to home. Because there is in the life of every person, every young person, a time during which he or she needs to start deciding for themselves about what is right and wrong. 
there is, of course, some difference of opinion between the young people and the parents as to when that moment exactly comes. But it will come. And it will come in many areas of life. Dress code, going to church or youth group, websites, computer games, artwork at school and in your career or for now coasting, sex, joining this group or that, trying it all out or saying no, which friends, how to spend your money, zillions of questions. And you need to make sure then, of course, that there is no confusion between who takes the decisions and what the criteria are to take the decision. Because if you think that when your parents no longer decide that also the Bible's criteria and ethics are out, then you are losing the baby with the bathwater. And there is, of course, sometimes a tricky and a difficult fine line between not wanting to copy certain traditions and habits of your parents, insisting on which could be legalism, and not following Jesus as he speaks to us in the Bible, in discerning between right and wrong, because that would be libertinism, license. And like with legalism, also on libertinism, Paul does not beat around the bush. The great thing about the Apostle Paul is that he doesn't waffle. He is very direct, very straightforward, because it is so very important. It is a matter of eternal life and death. And he is brutally honest, because it is urgent, as none of us knows when that eternal life will start. And this is what he says. Of which I tell you beforehand, this is this list with bad things, just as I told you in times past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he repeats it later, do not be deceived, in chapter 6. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows, and the one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. Because living in libertinism, you have also lost the plot, and you're on your own. Not with God, not to heaven. Because if in life you don't want to live with God, why would you think that he wants you to live with him in death? But more importantly, the reverse is also true, and it follows on that verse that we just read in chapter 6. Now looking at chapter 6, verse 8. Because if you do want to live with God in life, he wants to be with you. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. And that then brings us to our third point. Because living your life in Christian freedom is not living in legalism, not living in libertinism, but in love for God and his people. And Paul brings up the topic several times through our text. Because if it's not legalism and not libertinism, what then is the guide for our life? What helps us to decide between right and wrong? And what role plays the law then? How do we give shape and form to living in Christian freedom? Well, 
That is verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And then there is verse 14. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. And 16 to 18. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature, and they are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And then, of course, the last section, 22 to 25, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And against such things, there is no law. And those who belong in Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. And since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Now, what does all this mean exactly? It may not be immediately obvious. It certainly wasn't to me. So let's start with the easy bit. The verses 22 to 23. There is another of those lists. And we recognize them, of course, as good things. And it is worthwhile reflecting on all these terms. Patience. Not being short-tempered, but long-tempered. Being steadfast in love. Have staying power, perseverance in difficulties. And there is faithfulness. Are we faithful to God, doing his will and joining his people? Are we faithful to our partner? Are we loyal to our friends? Can our colleagues and our boss rely on us? I will leave the rest of the list to your own meditation. But about all these good things, mentioned as examples, of course, and not as we saw an exhaustive list, Paul says two things. The first, he says, is in in verse 23, against such, there is no law. And the word such can either mean such things, the, the things mentioned before, or people who do this. And what he says, all these good things are in harmony with the law. And that is in parallel with what he said in verse 14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see, the law is not about complying with the letter of the law in order to be good with God. But yes, the law is a guide for your life. And following this guide will bring about good things. Everybody who thinks about his own personal life and about life in society at large will recognize that if all followed the law, our life and the world would be in a much better shape. That is clear. But it is a guide that needs to be followed not to earn salvation, but out of thankfulness to God, out of love for God and our neighbor. That is how the Lord Jesus himself summarized the law. In response to a question, Jesus answered, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, The Lord our God, the Lord, is one. 
And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That is the first commandment. And the second like it is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There are no greater commandments than these. And the other thing that Paul says is, these things, doing all these things, is the fruit of the Spirit. Doing the right thing, he says in verse 10, of living, a consequence of living by the Spirit. Because if we live by the Spirit, then you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That's what it says in verse 16. And Paul is giving the Galatians and us here a great encouragement. If you live by the Spirit, you will choose to do the right thing. Now, how does that work? Well, left to our own devices, we might indulge our sinful nature or the flesh. That's what verse 13 says. We might do the easy thing, the thing that looks attractive or fun or seductive or cool or opportune and so on. And we might go off and do the things we might want to do, as Paul calls it at the end of verse 17. But then the spirit battles. It is in conflict with, says verse 17, with our natural, natural inclinations. The spirit stands in the way and prevents us from doing wrong. But how does that then come about? The spirit doing battle with our natural inclinations. This belonging to Christ Jesus and having crucified the flesh with its passions and desires as he says in verse 24. How does it come about? Well, says Paul, living with the Spirit, verse 16, and keeping in step with the Spirit, verse 25, brings that about. And what is that? That is wanting to live with and for God. It is wanting to live with and for God. It is asking, as some of the youngsters had on a a bracelet, what would Jesus do? Or maybe even better, what would Jesus like me to do? When we face the questions that life throws at us, at home, at school, at work, in church, everywhere, in prayer and in reliance on God, trusting him and asking him, Lord, what do you want me to do? And then Paul says, you will receive help and an answer. And there will be struggle and conflict Verse 17, if we ask, what would Jesus like us to do? The Spirit will help us to avoid what we otherwise, otherwise might have wanted to do. That is what the Lord, through Paul, urges us to do in verse 6. He does not want legalism, and he does not want libertinism. The only thing he says that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Trusting in him seeking his guidance and relying on him when the good decision seems to be difficult or disadvantageous and then taking that decision which expresses our love for God and for his people. Now does that mean that we all have to be ethics professors who can write neat essays about difficult questions? or members of the Church Public Affairs Committee advising the government on what is right and wrong? Well, of course not. 
that will be way too difficult, maybe not even a good use of your time. But we should not be afraid or hesitant. Because in verse 16 it says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And that promise is for you, not just for professors and ministers. And if you simply read your Bible regularly and reflect on the Ten Commandments and reflect on the Old Testament with all its rules, many, of course, today not very practical anymore, but if you reflect on these rules, on how to treat people, how to treat animals, how to treat fields, captives, the sick, those in need, accidents, and on and on and on, and if you reflect on the life and the word of the Lord Jesus in the New Testament, then you will get the feeling for what is right and wrong also in the world today. And of course, we can also learn from other Christians before us and read their books even if we don't always totally agree. You don't have to reinvent the wheel every time and all traditions can be very good and wise. And we can talk to our fellow Christians in men's meetings, women's meetings, Bible study groups, youth groups, camps, whatever, and learn from each other, even if we don't always totally agree. And then, above all, we have the promise in verse 16, and already way, way back in the Old Testament from the prophet Jeremiah, where we read the promise in the second reading that Jesus would come, and that God, in the first reading, would enter into a new covenant. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. When you seek God's guidance in your life, and ask the question, what would Jesus like me to do? He will be with you. Paul writes it here, and even more explicitly in his letter to the Philippians, chapter 3, verse 15. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. You see, the questions may be difficult, and the opinions may differ. But if we seek to live with God and love our brothers and sisters, then God will help us to make the right choice. And so then, can we live our life in Christian freedom? A life not in legalism, not in libertinism, but in love. And then we can sing, take my life and let it be, consecrated Lord to thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice and let me sing, always only for my king. Take my silver and my gold, not the might I would withhold. Take my intellect and use every power that thou shalt choose. Take my will and make it thine. It shall be no longer mine, 
take myself, and I will be ever only all for thee. Amen.